welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. The way that we all as fans consume sports content has been evolving since the beginning of spectator sports. The ways they interact started slow with being there in person, to newspapers, to magazine, to radio, to eventually television. All those methods still exist, but the advent of digital content created an explosion of those consumption models and the content that fans are interacting with. Someone who's not only had a front row seat to this explosion, but a hand in crafting digital media and sports is our guest today, Adam Kempinar. Adam is an accomplished broadcaster, instructor, and award-winning digital professional with more than two decades of experience driving audience engagement in sports, film, and media. Adam recently returned to the University of Iowa, where he earned a master's in journalism and mass communication and a bachelor's in communication studies as an adjunct lecturer after 20 years with the Chicago Blackhawks, most recently as vice president of marketing and content. Adam was part of three Stanley Cup championship teams during his tenure with the Blackhawks and oversaw the growth of the digital content department from a one-person operation to a staff of over 20, encompassing creative, social media, video, website, mobile, photography, email marketing, and business analytics. Adam was instrumental in launching and evolving the club's digital platforms, including NHL League social media channels, the Blackhawks.com website, and the trailblazing video production brand Blackhawks TV. He is the recipient of four Chicago Midwest Emmy Awards for sports programming, outstanding achievement, a single spot campaign, documentary, and one-time special. Adam is a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association and holds a bachelor's in English from Grinnell College and a master's in journalism and mass communications from the University of Iowa. While his podcasting and, and digital media prowess, I, I'd be lying to say I was a little nervous about the, the conversation with Adam, but he does such an amazing job of making it, things like this conversation and all these discussions seem so effortless. So we hope you all enjoy this conversation with Adam Kepinar. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. There's so many interesting things that you've done in your career and had a long career in sports with some really cool roles. But give us a view on what you're doing today and how you're transitioning from one role to the other and and what's looking forward in the future. Yeah, for me, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here and great to be on the show. For me, teaching was always the thing I knew I wanted to do after the Blackhawks. I didn't know when that would be. But as I was approaching my 20th season with the Blackhawks, or actually concluding my 20th season with the Blackhawks in August, an opportunity presented itself that I couldn't pass up. And I have started teaching in the sport and recreation management department at the University of Iowa. And that really came about through a relationship I had with the head of the department, Dan Matheson, great guy who I got to know about 10 years ago when he approached me as an alum looking for cool things for his students to experience, practicum experiences, opportunities to come to cities like Chicago and teams like the Blackhawks and spend a couple of weeks there, get to know people, get to understand the inner workings and actually do some work, do some tasks if those applied. And back then, for many of those years, we had a summer convention where we actually used those students to work at the convention. That was very useful to us. And also, we would give them research projects to do to help us out. Some of those things that 
you know, maybe with a limited staff and time, you always wanted to do a deeper dive on what's a topic you wanted to learn more about, we would utilize those Iowa students to explore those things and come back and present to us. And often we'd implement some of their ideas. So that's really where that came about. And Dan and I just always stayed in touch. And he knew that teaching was the thing I eventually wanted to do. Ever since I stepped foot on a college campus, I was an undergrad at Grinnell College as an English major and then eventually University of Iowa for grad school. I kind of knew that felt like home. I, there's something about a campus and an environment where you're you're always learning and you're always mentoring people that felt and being mentored that always felt right to me. So it's really exciting now to to have concluded two decades with the Blackhawks that I do think were pretty successful and be able to apply a lot of that now with my students. It is really cool to see that evolution. And I would imagine that so much of the experience that you had with the Blackhawks can really be rolled into that educational experience. It's got to be an enormous value for those students. And as you mentioned, it becomes a really cyclical relationship mm -hmm. of the ability to teach and educate, but also the students getting back and being able to work in those practical projects. Inside that program, Adam, what is it that you teach or what are the courses that you would in instruct in that program? Currently, my role is adjunct, and I am only teaching one class looking to expand and have already proposed some classes for the future, envision taking over some classes, potentially in other departments as well, but within sport and recreation management, hope to be teaching some advanced sports marketing where I can take students and the fundamentals that they've learned in other classes and really give them a sense, to your point, give them a sense of, okay, now how does that get applied at the pro level? How do we take some of those basic things about marketing and branding and content and really expand on them and see how if you were a student, if you were someone who graduated and you were entering a team like the Blackhawks, what would that look like actually doing those things day to day? What are the things the, the Blackhawks need you to do? But right now I get to teach the thing that I'm probably most qualified to teach about, which is podcasting. And that was something that I proposed along with four or five other ideas for one class to start. And they had pulled the students just informally within SRM. They said, here are some different ideas if we were looking to add a class to the department, which one would appeal to you the most? And podcasting, I guess, was the almost unanimous choice. I think that the students in the department realize the role podcasting has in the media landscape, the sports landscape, how it's just continuing to grow and evolve. And they didn't have anything like it to offer at this time. They actually had had enough foresight, some of the faculty there to to buy some equipment. They knew that it mm -hmm. was something they wanted to get into, but they didn't really have anybody like me that had the really practical experience in the field to come in and set up the equipment and set up a, a curriculum for students. So that was exciting for me to hear because I, I started transitioning to teaching pretty quickly. <laughs> in fact, my my first class with Iowa was four days before my last day with the Blackhawks. So wow. I, I was very much still ensconced in the Blackhawks marketing and content at the time. And I, I needed a class that I felt like I could jump in and kind of just hit the ground running. And for me, that was podcasting. And I'm about to embark on semester two 
which I'm extremely excited about because I love the fact that now I get to take everything I learned from semester one, all the mistakes I made, hopefully those mistakes I covered up well with the students, but I learned a ton from it and have already made a ton of adjustments to the syllabus. So I, I everybody has told me, and you would have a perspective on this, that you don't really know what you're doing until you've taught a class three times. I'm guessing that really is true, but I know that just taking the experience of one semester and applying it the second semester will be really great. It will. And as someone who's been teaching the technology of sports course in our program, I guess for 10 years now and teaching it somewhere between two and four quarters per year, I would agree with you that you get the second, third, you really start to get your bearings. But the one thing that's really great about teaching is that it's constantly evolving, mm -hmm. especially in something like you do an evolving medium or technology as I have done. I learned just as much from the students as they learned from me, partly because we all interact with technology in such a different way. And I can imagine that students in the podcasting course or as you evolve into marketing and so on, they experience those things differently. They've had podcasts much of their life, whereas we did not have that same experience. So it'll be really cool to see how you get your feet under you with that and continue to curate out the course. I will say there's no pressure here on myself or producer Austin Adam being a podcast here. I'm sure you could give us quite a few pointers on on how to do these things, but we appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you one quick tangible example of what you just spoke to, how the field and how technology is evolving. Obviously, video podcasts and video podcasting have been around since the beginning. We early on in my other life as a film critic with my show Film Spotting, dabbled in it back in 2005, did five episodes that were video focused, but it really has come about lately. And when I was teaching my students the first night of class and going through all the basics of podcasting, kind of a state of the industry, I asked my students how they consume podcasts. And I expected the answer to be, well, most of us use Spotify and Apple. And I found that the majority, I thought some would say it, but to have the majority say the way they consume podcasts is via YouTube, that was surprising to me. And I think it was literally the next day, I started getting some emails in my inbox and there was an industry newsletter, a new research study had come out that had pulled all these people and said that YouTube is now the the number one place people are finding podcasts. And in a lot of cases, they're not even video driven shows. They are just audio versions of the show with some video. It could be a static backdrop or logo or right. whatever it is. But of course, it makes sense. Intuitively, you go, well, YouTube's where, especially this younger demographic, is going for content. They're using it like they use Google. It's, it's a search engine almost as much as it's a content hub. So it makes sense that they're going to type in whatever it is that's on their mind or what they want to, what they do want to consume. And even if it's just audio, that's where they're going to listen to it. So it was funny how I realized pretty quickly that although I'm not ready, wasn't ready semester one, and I'm not ready semester two to, to really activate it. At some point, the class is going to have to evolve and the students aren't going to be just producing an audio podcast, a, a pilot episode for their own podcast as their final project, there's going to be a video component and they're going to have to be able to show that they understand that part of the media, the medium as well. It's a really interesting data point because what I think back to when we were starting to do this as well, 
we thought about the platforms that you just talked about, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, even something like Stitcher, mm-hmm. which you don't think of YouTube. But funny enough, I was actually just listening to someone talk the other day about how Joe Rogan, in, mm-hmm. and obviously he has a, a big podcast deal with Spotify. So much of his podcast is actually consumed in that manner as well. And it's really interesting to see because there's such a vested interest for someone like Spotify who paid him a bunch of money mm-hmm. to have that consumed on their platform. But then that the consumption comes via YouTube, whether that there's video behind it or not. Like you said, you know, you see other popular podcast networks like The Ringer, Bill Simmons and his group, and they have video podcast, but oftentimes, like you said, just have static images there. And then the audio is, so it is really interesting how, like you said, building on talking about how I, with my students, you know, they interact with technology vastly different than I do as a 40 year old person who grew up a little differently than they did. It's very telling in some ways to see, well, they, that's the medium that they use. And yep. it's kind of a catch-all in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, going back though, you talk about you teaching the podcast class now, evolving from a marketing perspective, you obviously have a ton of background in marketing. And you mentioned your two decades with the Chicago Blackhawks. Can you give us a view of what you did and what you're responsible for with the Blackhawks and how that role evolved over time? Yeah. When I started with the team that was in 2002 and the job I applied for and had for my first six years was web producer. And I always tell people when I first saw the email come over and the team that I grew up rooting for and my favorite hockey team was looking for anybody, I got excited. And I had a little bit of web background because I had taken some classes as a grad student at the University of Iowa. And I thought, well, maybe I'm qualified for this, but I was a little nervous that they were maybe looking for a web developer, someone who was really going to do the heavy lifting and building a website. And I read the job description and what they needed actually was a content manager and a content producer. And they needed someone who could do it all because I was going to be a one-person staff. And I was a one-person staff for those first six or seven years. I think the only help I really had were part-time interns, usually on on game night. We were a very skeleton crew in my early days with the Blackhawks. So that afforded me the chance to be a one-person content team. They needed someone who could shoot and edit video, which I could do. They needed someone who could interview players and coaches who could write fundamentally, who could write, who had a journalism background and could produce that content and then was tech savvy enough to manage all of the content on the website. So I was the writer, I was my own editor, and I was the person updating the web. And that went for video content as well. And of course, that really did last up until about 2008-09, when a few different things happened. I always say it's kind of a perfect storm. In 2008, we got new leadership under Rocky Wirtz taking over for his father wanting to be really aggressive and wanting to change the culture of the Blackhawks and be a winning culture on and off the ice. It helped that we had Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane and some other really good guys who were just coming to the team, guys who you couldn't know it then for sure, but you hoped would become all-stars. And not only that, they were you know, named among the best 100 players ever. So that's happening. And then at the same time, social media is taking off. So we have an exciting team an exciting young team that hasn't accomplished anything yet, but they seem to be on the verge of it. And we have an organization that wants to put them and everyone else in a situation to succeed. Then we've got all these channels to share these players 
and content around those players with our fan base and with a, an emerging fan base, with a younger fan base. The Blackhawks were not on their radar. Anybody who was 8 to 18, maybe even 8 to 28 at the time that the Blackhawks were just starting to be on that cusp of achieving something again, 2008, 09. But all of those things came together and we tried to do our best to to take advantage of it. And things worked out pretty well with the team, with the team winning three Stanley Cups in, in six seasons. And my role really expanded from being that one person operation to in 2008, having an opportunity to start my own department. John McDonough was our president at the time. And he came to me and said, I think you can do more. I think we need to use you more. What do you want to do? What a fortunate position to be in. And I got to come to him and say, at the time, I'd love to be the director of new media, new media. It seems so quaint now, but in 2008, that that's what it was. I want to be the director of new media and publications. I think with my content background, that's the right fit for me. He was on board and I got to start a department and that was a slow evolution that was hiring one full-time person and one full-time intern over time. When I was the, the VP of digital content in 2020, before moving on to merge marketing with content, my last two seasons, we were up to a department of over 20, including full-time interns. And that's a reflection of the, the industry, right? Going from you just kind of had websites to you had websites and you had podcasts, then you had websites, podcasts, and you had to be thinking about video and YouTube. And you had to be thinking about Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and everything was getting more and more specialized and digital content evolved into something that encompassed graphic design, photography, social media, web, mobile, even analytics early on. That was something that I felt very passionate about that we needed to be more aggressive with at the Blackhawks. So it was, it was really exciting to be on that journey. And of course, not know in 2002, when I took that job, that any of that, you, you always know technology is going to move quickly and there's going to be new paths to reach fans. I couldn't have predicted any of the developments that we, that we had. And it, it was a really rewarding experience to be able to just keep trying new things early on. You didn't know what you were doing. There was no manual for how teams should operate with Twitter or any of these channels you learned by doing, you learned by making mistakes. And we just kept adding to the media arsenal that the Blackhawks had. It's an amazing experience to be able to start in 2002. When, as we think about it, I was, rounding out undergrad at, at that time. And none of the things that we engage with today were really prevalent. No. And I tell this story far too often and listeners of the podcast are probably going to be sick of hearing it. But when I was in a student in the program, I finished in 2008. Students were leaving the master's of sports administration program at Northwestern and going to teams and leagues and universities and marketing agencies and so on and saying, Hey, you need a social media director. This is becoming a thing. I have a master's degree in sports administration, but I also have been ingrained in social media. And they were getting jobs because, like you said, it was really crafting a new strategy for that, mm -hmm. right? What I think is really cool is you've had a front row seat to the evolution of digital content in professional sports. Can you talk a little more about back from when you originally hired, what you were doing 
in 2002 to where it got to when you wrapped up your career with the Blackhawks? Yeah. How much time do you have? It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, to cover everything because the scope of my role changed so much. And of course, by the end, I was the person who was focused more on making sure that we had the right staffing, that we had the right resources, that we were getting our cameras or writers or social media people into the right places and that the rest of the organization understood what our objectives were. And and even more than that, especially once I really took over on the marketing side for a long time with the Blackhawks, there was a split with digital content being just that. Of course, digital content is marketing, but then there's also some traditional marketing things that needed to be done as well. And before that merger happened, we we really did have a have a divide there, but every department, I don't know if, if people who are students especially understand this, if they're looking to get into marketing with sports teams or content even with sports teams, every department in an organization like the Blackhawks requires the marketing department, requires the marketing and content teams. They can't do what they're trying to accomplish without our assistance. That could be from a community relations side, an event side, fundraising, tickets, sponsorship. They need the content producers to, and the marketing folks to create collateral, to promote those events, to do all those things. But the content department also could just be doing its job on its own every day, separate from being sort of the internal agency for the entire organization. You could just be producing content about the team in your own little bubble. But we expanded outside that bubble to becoming that internal agency for the entire organization. So my my scope became one where I wasn't just thinking every day about what's going on the website, what's going on social media, what videos are we producing? Are we producing long form content and how are we releasing that and where it became about the big picture goals of the Chicago Blackhawks. It became about ticket sales. It became about sponsorship sales and all of the ways that the marketing and content teams could support those initiatives for the organization. It really, the, the whole world just expanded to thinking holistically about the entire organization versus those first 10 years or so. I came to work every day just thinking about what cool content was I going to make? Over time, I had to see that as how did that all fit within the larger business objectives of the team. So really valuable insight around how so much of marketing fits into the overall strategy from a team. And as someone who works in technology and teaches about technology, I don't often think about that because I don't have the same brain as a marketer would or someone who creates digital content. But it makes a ton of sense that so much of that is tied into it. You talk a lot about this content in sports provides a ton of great, compelling content. So many people seek out and consume sports content, but from a hockey perspective, and I have a good friend who worked for the New York Islanders and the minor league hockey, and always has wonderful things to say about all the players from a professional organization. He worked in other pro sports and loved his experience in hockey, but hockey players are also sometimes a little notoriously tight-lipped in interviews and even camera shy. Did that impact that content itself and the storytelling around it or how you curated that content itself? Overall, I think we were very lucky with our players and I'll, I'll get into why, but that, that reputation of hockey players is, is earned. 
it's accurate. They do tend to be, and obviously I've, I've interacted with a lot of colleagues with other teams and heard their stories. And I know day to day what it was like working with the Blackhawk players. Hockey guys tend to be a little bit more down to earth, a little bit more approachable. Fortunately, the the downside though is that they are really unselfish and they don't want generally to have themselves singled out separate from the team. It is just a fact that you will be way more likely to get a guy to give you really good sound bites or to do some kind of content piece with you if you're talking about the team or you're talking about teammates, we versus I. There aren't a lot of guys on the Blackhawks over the years that want to focus on themselves. There's even a phrase that I, I feel like is unique to hockey. You'll hear a lot of players use. Sometimes when you start asking them questions, they'll say, so you want me to pump his tires? They'll talk about pumping his tires. And are, am I pumping my own tires? Am I pumping that opponent's tires? They, they're happy to do it for a teammate. Again, they're happy to talk about the team. They don't want to talk about themselves so much or single themselves out. They especially don't want to do it if maybe they individually aren't playing so well and if the team as a whole isn't playing so well so at times when the team is in a little bit of a valley that that leads to things drying up a little bit when you go talk to guys and say hey we've got this idea for a silly video they don't want to be perceived as doing something silly they don't want to be putting themselves out there at the expense of the team but where we where we got lucky is we got these guys. First of all, we got lucky because the team was really good for a solid decade or so, right? And winning championships. So we didn't have too many of those valleys. We had a lot of peaks. But we also had guys who came in young and we got to build, we got to build that culture with them. We got to create these content teams and figure out how to use all these channels with these young guys. And Patrick Kane said to me once, I, I remember he was coming home from the Olympics and I'd given him, this is, this is 12, 14 years ago, sort of pre-smartphone, you know, the smartphones being ubiquitous. I remember I had to give him a flip cam to take to the Olympics and he brought me back the flip cam with behind the scenes content on it. And I remember him joking with me one time. He's like, maybe we just, we just don't know any better. But that was kind of true. There were a lot of players and veterans on other teams who would just say no to stuff like that. But our guys were young and we ingrained that culture into them early on that this, this was part of trying to build this up. For the longest time, people look back and they look at the success of the Blackhawks in those championships. And I don't remember exactly when and where the streak ended, but sellout streak at 550 games or something in a row. Well, I remember those first six seasons when we were lucky to have seven to 10,000 people in the building and we only sold out when the Red Wings were in town and they were a lot of Red Wings fan, fans and nobody in town was was wearing Blackhawk stuff. And I, I never take for granted that I got to be part of that that change. But we all knew that it was way more fun for the players too to be playing in a, in a packed building. And it was fun to be recognized when you were out. And it was fun to have people say to you, I love that video that you did. That's hilarious. And guys got those questions because of some of the content and they got some of that adulation because of the, the content we produced. I, I would never, of course, suggest that our content and marketing is more important than on ice success. Without a doubt, the things they did on the ice drove a lot of that. But 
I hope that we were approaching it the right way. We understood the need to, to showcase the personalities of our players and to develop that affinity for our players, whether they were winning or losing, knowing that at some point the winning would have to stop. It's just the way sports works. So can we develop that bond and that connection so that they're there and they're supporting our team and those players in the in the lean times? as well that was that was really what drove our thinking and we recognized that as as a team entity our players trusted us we got to go into the places that the traditional media doesn't get to go into we get to go on the bench and on the planes and on the buses how do we bring the fans there with us was our approach it does seem like a really cool almost perfect storm of how those things came together for you as yes. building that content department but like you mentioned the young players and not knowing any better or right. being from that generation and saying, well, this is content or is what drives eyeballs, what drives engagement. And it's cool to hear you talk about how you kind of got to evolve together, right? Your department yes. and what you did and the players and what they were doing and their success and that built on that. You mentioned a lot of that success. For me, being someone that lived in Chicago with breaks in London and for 16 years, starting in 2005, I never knew the Blackhawks living there not in that really sold out, toughest ticket in town. And so you were there at the United Center for one of the great dynasties in NHL history. Just some yeah. great teams and some great players. When you step back from it now with some space from it, what are some of the highlights of that run, not only from a team perspective, but from your work and what you captured mm -hmm. inside of that work? Yeah, sometimes I do have those moments where you remember something and you go, we got to do that. I got to be part of that and and I'm still grateful and it will it will always be special and I'll talk about the work because that that really is what matters the most and it's what I was focused on day to day was just trying to produce great content for our fans but I think back to just opportunities like being on the plane both times we won Stanley Cups on the road, including 2010, where we've won the Stanley Cup as an organization for the first time in 49 years. And there's only about whatever the manifest says, about 60 or 65 people that can say they were on the plane with the Stanley Cup coming home to Chicago from Philadelphia after partying in a Philadelphia visiting locker room. When you left, there was so much champagne and beer on the ground that you were you were standing in it you were waiting in it you know and then being on the plane with the stanley cup and then getting to do it again i'll, I'll never forget in in boston of course the insanity of 17 seconds two goals back to back when you're you're losing i'm standing outside the locker room we're losing two to one and you think we were hoping to win the stanley cup tonight now we have to go back home for a game seven that's why you you put yourself in the position to play a home game for a game seven. But what if we lose? What if this is all over? All these things are going through your head. The next thing you know, you've scored twice and you're hoisting the Stanley Cup again and you're partying in a locker room again. And Duncan Keith was just standing there at one point, great defenseman. I, I see him taking in the scene and I'm standing next to him and he turns to me and he says, are we really doing this again? He was sort of just like, could this really be happening? Because especially in the salary cap era, teams winning twice, it's it's unheard of and you go back you're a guy like duncan on those teams where there's five to eight thousand people in the building to then be hoisting the stanley cup for the second time is is insane and then we got to do it at home too so i think about i think about moments like that i think about getting to have the stanley cup at my house these are things when you're when you're 
a bad team just dreaming and making the playoffs you never fantasize about about that becoming a reality and and so many of those things actually did happen and in in conjunction with that some of the things i'm proudest of and some of the ways we did try to innovate we win that cup in 2010 and publishers come to you and say hey congratulations on winning the stanley cup We're, we want to put out your stanley cup book here's all you have to do supply us with these things we'll give you a cut and there were times during the making of those publications where I kind of wish maybe I had taken the easy way out and I sat back and just gave them some assets and stood on the sideline and we collected our check. But instead, we all sat around and said, well, who who's better to tell our story than us? And we've got we've got our own writers and content people and people like me who I felt could edit a piece like this. I'd never made a book before, much less a 240 page hardcover championship book, but I knew we had the right people. I knew we had the right designers and photographers. And we said, let's, let's do this on our own. Let's figure out how to publish our own book. And we did that. And that book, and then what became actually a trilogy is still something that's, that's so sacred to me. And I look back on and I'll, I'll know I can, I can look at that book on the shelf and know that we accomplished our goal, which was we thought anyway, to make the best championship book anybody had ever seen. And I think it's at least in the conversation and to do something then, like I said, that at the time, and I still don't think many people do this. It's not the norm. Most people take that deal. We said, nope, we're going to produce the book ourselves. And then getting to do it again and getting to apply all the things you learned from that first time, that was also remarkable. But then we also took on, we didn't do it in 2010, but in 2013 and 15, we made Stanley Cup championship movies, 60-minute documentaries where I got to apply all my film and video background and my love of, of cinema, I got to I got to merge them together and be part of producing 60 minute films and not only have those come out on DVD and Blu-ray, but play theater, play theaters in the Chicagoland area and see how fans reacted to those pieces. And what is most striking to me when I think back on those those months working on those things and all the passion and energy that we put into them is we were a smaller department then than we ended up being and we still had to do our regular jobs <laughs> and everything everything gets heightened and there's more demand for everything there's more work to do when you're winning and when you win a championship and then on top of it we said we're going to do a 240 page book and we're going to make a documentary it i i actually looking back on it i'm not totally sure how we pulled it off but the work itself I, I i hope speaks for itself and i'm i'm incredibly proud of of first having the opportunity to do it at all to do things that i had never done before like make a documentary like make a, a championship book but to see the results and to see how fans took to them and how much they enjoyed them the pleasure they took from those pieces that those are among the things i i look back on with the most fondness what's really cool about that too is all the work that you put into that created something that gives you a lifetime of the ability to enjoy that again, yes. to relive that again and, and relive it in a way because you were so ingrained in it and ingrained in creating it. Even as a lay fan, someone who didn't play hockey growing up, so I didn't really know the rules that well. I remember those, all of those times that you mentioned. 
And it was really cool, even as a lay fan, just being a person in the city of Chicago, I can't imagine what it was like to be inside that experience and that atmosphere. But you mentioned several times the success of the team really helped build some of those things. And you talked about how winning doesn't always continue forever. When that team's performance started to change, decline a little bit, what did you learn about creating content being that it maybe wasn't tied to success or it wasn't tied to the level of success that had been previously there for the Blackhawks? Does that change the concept of how you have to go about creating that content? Yeah, I think it reiterates to you and refocuses you a little bit even more on how important the personality side of it is and how you really do have to try to develop those bonds with the players and produce content that makes those connections with the fans versus it being highlight driven or obviously results driven because you don't you don't have that so what can we do with our content to make our fans feel like they really know who these players are off the ice in addition to what they might be doing on the ice. That was always important, became even more important as the team performance didn't match what it what it used to be. The other part of it is you just have to be a lot savvier and strategic about the type of content you produce, where you put it, when you put it there, how you put it there, all these things that winning allowed you to it sort of gave you a lot of a lot of freedom to not be as dutiful in how you did that, meaning everybody just wanted to consume any piece of content about you they could because everybody was excited about the team. When that excitement's starting to shift a little bit and as more and more, platforms are there and more and more content is there and entertainment options are there for for fans competing with you for their for their eyeballs and attention you have to start thinking a, a lot more rigorously a lot more you, you have to be a lot more specific and intentional about what you're producing and like i said where where you're putting it and that's where the analytics side really came in and became so important as well but it was kind of to put it in a nutshell, when you're winning, you can produce almost anything and throw it out there and you can put it on almost any channel and we would see how well it performed. As the team performance starts to starts to dwindle, you had to you had to realize, okay, we always we always understood that the channels were different. But again, being more intentional about saying, okay, this is how we're going to use Instagram. And Instagram, we're going to use it differently than how we're using Twitter and how we're using Facebook and how we're using the web or YouTube. And these are the pieces of content that are going to go in these certain places. And this is the type of content we're maybe not going to produce anymore at all, or even highlights. And of course, that in some ways is tied to the the team on the ice, but realizing what's the what's the right amount and, and where are the right channels where highlights are, are things that fans want to consume. And what are the channels where that that doesn't drive engagement as much? Thinking a lot about engagement was was really something that became more prominent when the team performance started to dwindle a little bit. It's one of the really interesting things, different problems at different times. And it's cool to see how you can shift and mold and change those things based on team performance, but the personalities that you have and so on. Again, as people that just consume content, not someone that's been ingrained in making it. We take that for granted. We take for granted all the work that someone like yourself and your teams did to create those stories and the compelling stories around it. There's a million things that I could sit and talk to you about. I have so many questions and 
also the, the film criticism, I think is really interesting, but get you out of here on this. I think that what's really interesting to me with your experience over those two decades with the Blackhawks and building that now stepping back from that a little and moving into teaching as we go forward with sports and sort of landscape we have today, how people consume content and how that shifted and changed. What do you think the future holds in the short, medium, long-term for content consumption? I think people often think of that as live events, but more in the way that you created content to create engagement around the team. How do you think that continues to shift and move and evolve? Yeah, these are tough questions, of course, because if I if I had the crystal ball, I'd, I probably wouldn't be talking to you and I'd be rich and sitting on an island somewhere. But I think <laughs> I think that you're you're going to see that storytelling is going to only continue to become more and more important that the the media landscape is so fractured and people are on so many channels every day and they're consuming so much content that cutting through that clutter really takes something remarkable and sometimes that can be fluky things or viral pieces of content but uh, the things that really last are the the things that are more personal and i think that really showcase who these people are as human beings i think that that that's going to only become more and more important i do think as well for teams that you're going to see even more specialization you're going to see teams put even more resources into certain social media channels versus other ones being even more savvy about things like the times that they publish the formats they publish in the channels that they use versus the ones they don't use maybe even getting off of certain channels and focusing what resources they have only on the ones that are the most engaging i think you could start to see that versus the the spraying all fields approach that that dominated for a long time. Those would be the two biggest things that that stand out to me. I don't think storytelling is going anywhere, and I don't think that being sophisticated about how you use these channels is going anywhere. I think it's it's going to be even more crucial. Yeah, I think you're right. It is going to be really interesting to see how those things evolve, especially like you said, with all the different channels that we can consume and all the content that's out there, the fragmentation of all those things. But Adam, it's been incredibly insightful to be able to talk to you about all the things that you've done and the evolution in your career. And we wish you the best of luck in your next step and in, in teaching. And it's a really rewarding experience and great to see you be able to do that. But thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. It was wonderful talking with you, Bryce. And I want to say, too, great to see you again, Austin, someone who was a valuable member of my team over the years at a couple different points. And I appreciate all of your contributions at that time, Austin. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.